I'm all about that fuss-free glam. Give me makeup that's versatile and feels like air on my skin and has ingredients that love my face, that's good for my face. You know, clean ingredients. And don't even get me started on mascaras because I do want them bold and lengthening. <laughs> and so we have Thrive Cosmetics, which I've been using since 2020, obviously because I appreciate their foolproof products that make it really easy to apply for any skill level. And they have a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look, but also they give back. Every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. Hence why it's Thrive Cosmetics, C a u s e medics thrive cosmetics and bigger than beauty skincare are not just makeup brands they're a whole vibe they're all about empowering us to rock our confidence and when you support them we are helping other communities thrive their stuff is not only easy to use but no nasties zero parabens sulfites phthalates they are 100 vegan and cruelty free let's talk lashes thanks to thrive's liquid lash extensions i must say that my lashes are just so beautiful and lush it adds lengths there are no clumps and also guess what it slides right off with warm water so no raccoon eyes here and i appreciate they have nourishing ingredients that support longer stronger and healthier looking lashes over time and it's a unique formula they use that creates these tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. We've had problems in the past with the link, but the link does work now. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com magic. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash magic for 10% off your first order. As someone who is so excited to garden this spring, yet really wants top quality soil, I'm really excited to introduce you to Coast of Maine, which is an esteemed brand renowned for its organic soil offerings. And if you're seeking to infuse your home environment with a nourishing essence that promotes flourishing plant life, you're going to want to listen to this because with over 28 years of expertise, Coast of Maine has meticulously crafted soils sourced from oceanic waters and farms certified for organic cultivation. It's so nice to find such a sustainable sustainable, eco-friendly brand who really emphasizes the importance of natural ingredients to enrich their soil. And I mean, they have, like I said, top quality with rigorous quality control and OMRI listed certification. Their diverse range of products caters to all gardening needs. Most of our soils may lack appropriate nutrients for success for our plants and our plants need this. We want to regenerate the healthy microbes in our soils to set up for gardening success and just for our plants to thrive. So if we add Coast of Maine products, this will indeed help. Whether you're planting trees or shrubs or perennials in your yard, adding Coast of Maine soil in your planting holes leads to a long, slow feeding of your plants, making them self-sufficient and vibrant, which we love. Let's say you want a vegetable garden, 
Not only will you receive abundant harvest, but there will be less feeding and maintenance throughout the season. Amazing. You know that everything grown in Coast of Maine soil is organic and safe for your family and friends right out of the garden. And then you get to also feel good about their sourcing as I'm so thankful they provide natural ingredients because they will never include household waste or biosolids. And we know that nothing nurtures the world above better than the soil below, cultivated from products and practices rooted in coast of Maine. And so they will continually perfect the art and science of sourcing, mixing, and composting products worthy of the people and the place that inspired their brand and the healthier world it was built to serve. Coast of Maine believes in nurturing relationships with local retailers. We love supporting local and the products are carried by local retail partners who can provide advice and insight not found in big box stores. So Coast of Maine knows from beginner to expert, anyone who takes a hand to the land has something to offer the growing community of gardeners everywhere. And their products make organic gardening simple and approachable so we can all garden. So let's get to growing. Visit coastofmaine.com to find a local retailer near you. That's Coast of Maine, like the state with an E, Coast of dot hello magical friends i'm ali michelle and i'm raquel mantra and welcome to your own magic podcast our intention is to connect you with the most inspiring thought leaders and visionaries and share some of our experiences and wisdom to help you unleash your own magic yes we're so grateful you're spending this present moment with us today Everything can be your teacher. I think the biggest fault we're going to have with spirituality is starting to cultivate a spiritual ego where we go, you know, I'm too spiritual for that, or I already get that, I already understand that, I don't need to look at that anymore. We start to, you know, cultivate this kind of arrogant um, confidence that can really lead us into spiritual materialism or confusion. So the thing is to remain humble, but to remain curious and to continue cultivating knowledge. You know, you can be a master of your craft, but that means nothing if you think you're the only master or you think that no one can master it the way you have. If it becomes a competition, if your ego becomes involved, that can be destructive. So we create our own magic, I think, by allowing ourselves to really integrate deeply into our practice, but to do so with humility and humbleness above all. Now let the magic begin. Hello, Soul Tribe. Because you love him and his mindful wisdom, we had to have our friend Koi Fresco back on the show to answer some of your mindfulness and meditation questions. For those of you who don't follow Koi, he is a spiritual educator in the social media space with over half a million followers across Twitter, Instagram, and his YouTube channel, Koi's Corner. Koi is the author of two books, A Not-So-Enlightened Youth, and his newest release, The Meditation Manual, How to Master Meditation, Awaken Your Soul, and Transcend the Ego in One Week or Less. Yes, and on the last episode, Koi shared his nuggets of wisdom on letting go of the ego, astral projection, auras, soulmates, Buddhism, and of course, mindfulness and meditation, which we will be diving deeper into on this episode, as well as answering questions from the Soul Tribe that we rounded up in our Facebook group. So excited, beyond grateful to have you on again. Hello, Koi. Ram, Ram. Hello, greetings. Ram, Ram. Greetings. So, your book is finally out and absolutely amazing. How has the response been? 
It's it's been absolutely overwhelming. It's been beautiful. It, it definitely did better than I thought it would. You know, I I try to go into especially with book releases. I go into it without expectations, but it, it floored me how much reception there was and how much positive response and feedback there was to it. So it was a blessing. That's that does not surprise me. It was so good. And we're also just so curious. So we've been wanting to ask you about the third part of the subtitle. Um, the subtitle is How to Master Meditation, Awaken Your Soul, and Transcend the Ego in One Week or Less. Now, is this really possible to transcend the ego in a week or less? Yeah, well, in regards to meditation, it most definitely is. Uh, I think a lot of us, we take meditation to be a daunting thing. You know, it's hard for a lot of people to get into because the ego really has a hard time understanding silence as a lesson or nothingness as somethingness, which it is paradoxically enough. We're so often brought up and taught in the Western world that you know if, if we're not doing something physically or interacting or thinking, then we're wasting our time. But meditation is the complete opposite of that and proves that wrong, that sitting with thoughtlessness and in a space of peace, doing nothing physically, can you know awaken more within us than anything else can on, on a soul level. So uh, I kind of added that last part of the title in there just because I thought it was important for people to see, and it goes into depth about this in the book, talking about the awakening process as something that can be cultivated at any moment, depending on whether or not we are going to allow ourselves to open up to it. And that's where the one week or less portion comes in, uh, which I talk about in much more detail in the book. You do. It's brilliant. And I love that. And I love that your book is also just written so simply. It's an easy to understand book for people who are curious or just beginning their meditation journey, or even they have been meditating for a while, but just an easy concept to grasp what is only necessary. What I love about that is you really write only what is necessary for their practice to know why they're doing this. And so we want to begin this episode by asking you, what is the essence of meditation and why should we meditate? Well, it, the paradox, again, of meditation is that just like a spiritual life, we start meditating because at first we're doing it to gain something on a, on a personality level. So most people are getting into meditation because they want to either be more peaceful or control their thoughts or decrease the amount of stress and anxiety they face. And the interesting thing about meditation is that the more we partake in the meditation, the less we start to seek out these rewards. The things that occur in meditation, the awakenings we have, the byproducts of meditation become second nature. And so we start to allow them to kind of infiltrate us versus us trying to push our our subconscious or conscious agenda upon meditation. And that's why I think meditation is so powerful is it can do a lot for us in a personality sense. But as we evolve, it starts to do more for us on a soul level. So it has to do with the personality, the individual self and the eternal self which is one of the few things that I think exist at all that have the ability to do that. I love that. It is one of the few things that truly exists at all. And the wonderful thing about your book and meditation is that there's nothing external needed. They're cultivating this connection within by simply being with themselves. And it may shock people when you write, you are already a master of meditation. So why is everyone already a master of this practice? Well, it's, it's just about coming to understand the wholeness that is within. You know, uh, Vivekananda always talks about the ability or the understanding we should have that we can never fail, that there is no failure, that there is nothing we can't do because everything is already inside us because we are already everything. So it's impossible not to be something or not to accomplish something unless we talk ourselves out of it. 
And this goes with meditation too. As I said in the beginning, we're doing it for the personality. So the personality is going to see mastering meditation as, as a triumph, right? As a conquest, as an achievement um, to, the, to the identity in which we play out. It's, it's oh, yes, I got it. It's, it's a reaction on an emotional level. But the master of meditation is just the one who can sit. You know, they have no title. These people around the world who meditate are masters. And meditation has no hierarchy to it. Anybody who can sit in this space of thoughtlessness, who can sit with their breath, is mastering meditation. And that's what it comes down to is just saying that the master is within. You are the master, even if you don't know it yet. And that's important, I think, for a lot of us going into things because oftentimes we're taught that we aren't able to do certain things for X amount of time or that we have to be from this area or do these types of things to get to this space to hold this title. But if we can see that the master is within and that we are the master incarnate, even if we haven't recognized it yet, when we start to get it, we don't care so much about that title. And we start to see just how kind of frivolous that title is of the master, of being the master. Um, And it becomes, again, something that we can just throw away, that we can kind of shed like a snake sheds its skin in regards to what we identify ourselves as. And I write this and I explain it in the book because I think it's important, you know, not to identify as a meditator for too long. You know, when we begin, we're obviously going to identify with it because it's a practice we're picking up. But the more we go along, the better we get. But the better we get, the less we care about the status within the meditation, just more and more of an awakening within us. Mm, So really, mastering meditation is this sudden immersion into the present and a shattering of identities, even one of, I am a meditator. And will you explain the difference, actually, because I'm curious, between mindfulness meditation and zazen or zen meditation? Yes, well, well, zazen zazen and zen as, as a philosophy is really kind of paradoxical. It's hard to express, but mainly... The main things you need to know, and that I talk about in the book, are that mindfulness has to do with, or insight meditation kind of has to do with awareness of thoughts, recognizing them, but allowing them to flow. Zen is more so about not clinging to the thoughts at all, not even recognizing them as thoughts. So in mindfulness, we're seeing them as thoughts, we're identifying them as thoughts, but at the same time, we're recognizing them as illusory, letting them kind of flow by. So imagine you're on the beach, you can go, you can understand and identify the waves, you can go, okay, that's a wave, that's a wave, that's a wave. And you know it's a wave. You let it pass, you let it crash, you let it you know, rise and fall. Zazen is kind of opposite. Zazen just goes, there are no waves. There's just an ocean. You know, the waves don't even exist. You can, you can identify the waves if you want. I don't think I need to. So Zazen's kind of a little farther along. And it's a lot harder for a lot of people getting into meditation because Zazen really is a space of thoughtlessness. Uh, a practice I talk of in the book is that a way for beginners to practice the Zazen meditation, and Zazen just means literally Zen meditation, sitting meditation, is to think of thoughtlessness, which is a concept that might, you know, rack our brains. You know, how can I think of thoughtlessness? What would that be? Well, most of us would identify that as just complete blankness. And that's really the difference between those two is one is allowing the thoughts to kind of flow through us without clinging. And Zen is just saying, look, those thoughts don't even exist. You know, if you don't even recognize them as thoughts, they won't be thoughts and you won't have thoughts. So I say for a lot of people, you know, to start or begin their practices more so with mindfulness meditation because it allows us to use words, linguistics, ideas, concepts uh, to get into meditation. But but Zen is definitely one I, I see a lot of people that are more honed with their practice, I should say, or more 
in tune with the meditative practice getting into uh, eventually when they think they can go a step farther. Wow, that makes me want to, when I go to the ocean, because I usually do practice mindfulness meditation, and you're talking about the waves, and it's really interesting because that's actually exactly what I do when I go to the beach, and I watch the waves, and I think, oh, it's rising, and it's crashing, it's falling. But now, and not even saying, like, this is the ocean, you, I just would just stare. Yep, and that's kind of what Zen is, is just seeing it, you know, even when you get to the ocean and you identify it as the ocean, you go beyond it, and it's just... Yeah, it's just an occurrence rising and falling, and then you go beyond the rising and falling, and then it's just an occurrence. So it's just kind of breaking it down to a space of wordlessness and instead of just awareness without definition. That's wonderful. How do you come out of that, though, that state of mind when you are just there and thoughtless? I guess you just allow it to go, and you awaken naturally, or... It's kind of like any any liberating experience, and it's again one of the odd things about spirituality that we are, we're never going to conceptually get until we experience it. Is that any of these states—the meditative state, the samadhi state, the enlightened state—these occurrences happen when we transcend ego, right? When there's no personality at all, so there's no experiencer experiencing this occurrence. It's just a happening. It's just there. It's this kind of timeless space. And that's why it's synonymized with us being one with the universe, because the pure consciousness behind, you know, the individual consciousness is just there. It's just kind of permeating everything. It's just existing, but it's not identified. It doesn't have a a role to play. And that's kind of what the meditative state is. You don't know if you're in the meditative state until you return from it. And then you can reflect on it. That's why meditation is so powerful, because you're in the space and you can be in the meditative state for five minutes or 20 minutes and have no idea that you're there. And, yeah. but when you come back, as soon as you come back to the thought or to returning to the breath, or maybe you feel, you know, your body moving away and you, and your mind comes back on oh, my back hurts and your turn, then you go, Oh wow, I was just there. You know, I was just in that space. And then you can use that to grow and you can use the experience that it brought out in you to grow as well. A lot of the times I know for me, especially, and for a lot of people I've talked to, the, powerful part of meditation is that you start to have these kind of physical sensations when you come back that are there while you're in the state, but you don't feel them till you come back. And I don't know if you guys have experienced this, experienced this, but it's this, but it's kind of, but it's kind of a space. You have this rush of oxytocin and serotonin just floating your body and you feel euphoric. Yes, exactly. I think that's what is, oh, we're kind of echoing a second. Wait, do you hear an echo? It started. Yeah. Okay, you started skipping a bit. But yes, um, that is exactly, I think, what drove me to meditation. And in a sense, it's, I remember you talking about in the book that is one thing that drove you to meditation was the material reasons and also just the health and physical benefits. But it's interesting what really goes beyond that, the spiritual benefits. And you also talk about the ego self versus your true self, your true state. Do you mind elaborating on that a little bit? Yeah. So the majority of that is what stems from my practice, which has kind of evolved out of Buddhism into what's known as uh, Vedanta, specifically Advaita Vedanta, which is basically just a philosophy that has to do with the Vedas, the ending of the Vedas um, in, in Hinduism, in the non-dual sense. And, the, and non-duality means allness, oneness. Uh, there's no separation whatsoever. We're just living out life with the illusion of separation. Um, and Vivekananda says this as well. Swami Vivekananda was a very famous uh, philosopher of 
a non-dual philosopher in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And what it pretty much means is that there are two selves. One is unreal and one is real. The unreal self is the personal self, the me and the you, the uh, personalities we inhabit, you know, me being coy, having dreadlocks, um, being an American who was raised by a teacher, who was married, all these ideas, these words that define us, that we use to create the image of, of me, of my namesake. That is the illusory self, right? Because that is not the eternal. That is just what we create through our own thoughts, actions, and experiences in life to understand or try to understand reality through. It basically is building a, a trying at least to build a foundation to see reality through. But Advaita and non-duality goes, look, this is illusory and, and you trying to create a foundation in this self-made thing is always going to fall apart. Ram Dass kind of talked about it like building a house on, on soft sand, right? You can try to build a foundation in, in quicksand, but it's always going to fall apart. It's never going to last. You have to lay down the concrete. And the only thing concrete is the non-dual, all of this, which is the true self, the eternal self. In Hinduism, it's known as Brahman, which really just translates to allness, uh, beyond conception, beyond time, beyond space. All that ever could and ever will be, even beyond the idea of things being at all, is just Brahman. That's the word they use for it. For it. And in English, it's easy to say allness, right? It's easier to say what? Brahman, and in English, it is what? A good translation or a really simple translation would just be allness. You know, oneness still implies duality. Allness is all it can really be. Just all of this, all of it. That's all everything. This is what we are. We're just playing out a part of all of it. So if we are the universe, we're the universe. But right now we are playing out the role of human consciousness reflecting on the universe, looking at the universe. Um, Adi Shankaracharya, again, said it's like a fire trying to know it's hot. It can't. It's just hot. It's its nature. So we can't know intellectually that we are the universe because we are within it right now. We're inside looking out. We are it looking at it through a kind of pinhole of conscious experience through our identity. So all we can do is come to feel this oneness intuitively, to experience it. It's called smirti. It means experientiality in Hinduism. It's just feeling it, intuitively knowing it. Kind of how, you know, we can we can go on dates and we can like somebody and they can try to convince us all they want and they can have all these titles and stuff, but somewhere in our heart we recognize and we just kind of feel who is right for us. You know, we just know it without words ever being a part of the equation. It's just there. It's just a feeling we have. It's internal. It has no logic connected to it. It's just known instinctually. That allness can be known too. Our nature as that allness can be known. It just takes steps to do so. And one of those steps is meditative practice because it gets us out of the idea or the practice of living through the identity and brings us back to just sitting with this allness until we start to really feel it. That's so true. And also, I love your analogy on the fire that people only know that a fire is hot if they actually experience that heat. The teacher could say the fire is cold. And so you believe, all right, fire is cold until you actually touch the fire. And they're like, oh, just kidding. You can only experience that. Or somebody can meet everything on your list that you wrote down as far as a person that you want, but there's still just not that feeling there. You just know. Yes, and, and that's what they talk about a lot in uh, Advaita. They speak a lot of, and I agree with, is that 
no matter what any book says, any dogma says, anything says, if you experience something different, your experience trumps that explanation because you're experiencing it. And since you're experiencing it, it's your reality. And that goes along with the fire. A thousand books, again, like you just said, can say that fire is cold, but if I put my hand over that fire and I perceive it to be hot, then it is in fact hot because that's what I am experiencing through my advantage of reality. All right, guys, so we're about to ask your questions, but remember, unless <laughs> Koi could be completely wrong, you can have a completely different perception of according, uh, as opposed to whatever Koi says right now. We are going to ask people's mindful and meditation and even a couple personal questions that the Soul Tribe from the Facebook has for you. And we yeah. might not have time to go through them all because there were so many, but we are going to do our best. So Joanna asks, how do you distinguish between your intuition and your fear voice? Fear voice? Well, I've never even heard that term, but if we're going <laughs> off fear, fear only exists because we are resistant to the unknown, right? Intuition exists because we are receptive of the unknown. That's all we need to ever know the two apart, right? If we have an intuition about something, intuition is usually a, a productive thing. It's a way that we can go through with something. It's even if it has to do with a bad thing, it's a, something we're going to use to our advantage. That's what intuition is. Kind of like clairvoyance in a sense. It helps us kind of work our way through it. Fear is completely different. Fear is just the ego and the mind going, I have no idea what this is. I have no idea what's going on. And that is kind of pushing me away. Intuition is kind of having a, an idea in our mind, even if we can't identify it yet. And that's why when we have an intu our intuition is kind of registering something, we're going towards that intuition or we're going towards what that intuition is suggesting. Um, a good example is I, I can, you know, we can be out on, someone can be out, being out of the clubs, dancing, having fun. If my intuition is kind of giving me a signal about somebody that I might be interested in. All right, cool. It's, it's a progressive thing. It's giving me an action I can use, an idea that I can come up with because of it and go for that. But on the flip side, our intuition can also go, I don't, I don't know about this. And we're still certain of our not knowing. We're certain that, okay, something about my intuition is telling me not to do this. So let's go this direction instead. Fear of the fear voice is just going, I have no idea what to do. It's, it's solutionless. It's just kind of helplessness. It's putting us into this kind of victim mentality. So I would really just try to see it as that. See your intuition as something that is going to be um, in some sense connected to a potential solution. And the fear of voice is always just going to be in, inhabiting the, the complete helplessness. Mm, so intuition is really that compass of our hearts that provides clarity and it feels empowering versus fear creates that resistance and sense of helplessness and powerlessness. Yes, precisely. Okay. That's a really beautiful way to distinguish that. I love that. We're going to take a quick break to share our love for our sponsor, Hum Nutrition, who has an amazing giveaway for three of our sponsors. And a side note, I'm honestly super skeptical about any brand that claims to be the cure or the magical elixir to all your issues. But seriously, guys, Hum really does seem to heal almost all. I... I'm going to be honest right now. I have had terrible digestion and chronic bloating since I got back from Bali a few months ago, and it put me in a funk for a while. So when a friend recommended Hum to me, I took, I decided to take the Flatter Me and Gut Instinct tablets, and now... 
Let's just say I run a little more smoothly. And Hum is offering three of our listeners three months of $150 worth of Hum products for free, which is amazing. All you have to do is rate and review our podcast on iTunes, send a screenshot to info at yourownmagic.life, and tell us that you want to submit for the Hum giveaway. Yes, and don't forget about receiving 20% off Hum Nutrition with our promo code MAGIC. Hallelujah. Forgive me if I pronounce this incorrectly. Asked last episode, he spoke about how he originally mistook sitting and fighting off intrusive thoughts and trying to be calm during meditation, and he didn't truly understand what it was to reach a deep meditative state. When you've never experienced true meditation, what does it take to get there? Do I just have to sit longer, letting thoughts come and go until it happens? Do I have to do it twice a day? What are his tips for really sinking into that deep meditative state? So all we can do, and the reason I talked about that, all we can do to allow a meditative state to awaken within us is to cease our resistances, right? The only thing that keeps us from entering a meditative state is resistance, whether we're aware of that resistance or not. And that's what I kind of was doing. You know, I was trying to push the voices out, I was resisting the voices, resisting the thoughts, you know, chastising myself for having them. Oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I got to resist, let go, push it away. This, this resistance, this trying to do anything at all, good or bad, however we perceive it, is going to keep us out of this space, this meditative space. The only way we can really start to get into the meditative state and allow it to kind of infiltrate us is by ceasing our resistances. And that's why even with mindfulness, it says the thoughts will occur, but just to let them flow by. We're not trying to push them away or make them flow by faster. Those are both resisting. We're just trying to be there with it analyzing, recognizing, but staying with the breath or staying with this single point of focus. And that's all we can really do, you know, to awaken the meditative state. It really is that simple. It's just recognizing what ways or in which ways we are resisting and ceasing those resistances. And there can be many, and that's why it can take time to meditate. It can take months, it can take weeks, but for others, they'll come to see that letting go of resistances is very simple. And like I said in the book, that's why the mastering of meditation can happen the first time you sit down. It just depends on you know how we think and how we go through life right now, depending on how much resistance we use in daily life. So it's not so much about getting rid of our thoughts or uh, looking a certain way or feeling a certain way. It's simply relaxing, letting go, and allowing whatever flows or arises to arise. Yeah, it's pretty much just surrendering the idea of any control whatsoever in the meditation. There is no thing to there's nothing to control. You are controlling nothing. You're just you're just being the witness. So it's just letting go of any idea of control, which, you know, in, in the same sense is letting go of resistance. That's so powerful to transition our need to control life or bend it to our will and really go into that state of just complete and utter surrender allowing the universe to really write our story for us in a sense and that's what's so beautiful about meditation is that when we learn to do this in the meditative state it can be much much easier when we come out of meditation to surrender in waking life as well Hmm. so then it's interesting because it's almost like you never really know how the effects of your meditations are going to integrate in your daily life until it happens Exactly. And that, that's one of the fruits of meditation is they, they provide us with what we need. You know, we can't have any expectations for what we will get or what meditation will create for us. It does for us what it needs to do for us. And that's why it's so unique to, to everybody. Surrender it without expectation. All right. 
Brianna Allmark asked, is there a best way to sit in meditation? No, <laughs> uh, it's, it's the, you, this is another thing that I talk about in the book. You know, there are, of course, cultures and uh, sects of different schools and religions that say, you know, you have to sit this way. Your hands need to be in this mudra. And I can understand fully how those can empower so those can work. But when you're beginning, it's all up to you to find a comfortable position. You can lay down, you can sit down, you can use a, a zafu and zavatan, which they use in um, Zen for posturing to help your back. When you're starting off, it's just about allowing yourself to not have any focus on the body whatsoever. So the position of your body should be one with that one of, I should say, least resistance, whatever is easiest for you to sit in um, or lay in. You know, you don't have to sit down in a full lotus your first time to <laughs> meditate. A lot of people can't do that. It takes, takes practice. It takes a lot of stretching. So there is no right or wrong way to sit, um, especially not as a beginner. Oh yeah, it also depends on my day or my morning. I sometimes like to just wake up and then I lie there and meditate or I'll sit in a kind of a horse pose. That reminds me, Ali, we need to get bolsters because in India that we had the bolsters and we would sit in horse position and I just would not even think about my sitting position. I wouldn't feel any sort of pain in my back, which I know a lot of people do when they are not sitting against something for a while. So there are a lot of different positions, quote unquote, that you could sit in in order to feel better but it really just depends on how you're feeling in that moment i love that whatever you don't feel resistant to in that moment do that yes exactly um also so we have heather johnson and she actually has two really good questions and one that is more personal so i'll go with the first one first what is the key to maintaining balance in your life the key to maintaining balance I guess it depends on a couple of things. You know, if we're talking about emotional balance or, you know, balance in work, balance in life, I think the main thing we need to balance in life is to let go of expectations, but to remain, I would say, willfully optimistic is how we can create balance. Um, We're not supposed to be going through life, you know, with this somber look on our face, expecting suffering at every turn. Uh, I, I think the best way to go through life is with loving detachment and how um, a bhakta would go through life. And that is just loving the fact that you are existing at all, you know, enjoying the fact that you are part of this experience and hoping for the best, you know, planning, manifesting abundance in whatever way you can, going about your day, trying to make the most of it and make the best of this experience. But at the same time, holding, holding a space in mind, holding an awareness of the potential that things could end up going uh, in a direction you don't want them to. Because if we can prepare ourselves, if we can, you know, be going about our day saying, this day is great, but I have to accept in the back of my mind that maybe something might go wrong eventually, that's possible, recognize that kind of thought and then return to the positive, return to the optimism. Because if we do that and things do start to go wrong, we are now consciously aware, we've kind of preemptively set ourselves up in a way to accept this, to have a space mentally where we can not get blindsided by something going any way we didn't want it to. And that kind of leaves us in the middle ground. We're always sitting there with this kind of loving detachment, just watching, being, doing, with willful optimism, but also with a a conscious awareness of things maybe not going the way we want. And I think that for me is, is how I create balance a lot in life. You know, even if things aren't going the best, I'm still optimistic about how they might go, but I'm not attached to the, the fruits of those optimistic thoughts. 
Yes, I love that. And that's one reason why meditation is such a powerful practice for our everyday lives because then we learn not to react to those situations and instead just accept and then recognize that it's there, but shift our awareness to something that is more positive and take the path of least resistance. Precisely. And, you know, that's something uh, you'll realize as your practice deepens and as your meditative practice advances is that things will begin to go wrong and you'll recognize that you aren't reacting to them in a volatile way anymore. Most of us react to negativity with uh, validity or um, volatility is the word I'm looking for. We get upset. We push it back against it. We, we don't want to accept it. But the deeper we get into just sitting with the eternal self, being the whole living out the incarnation, uh, we, we start to see these, these, these big things that happen that we didn't want to happen as much smaller, much, much smaller, as just kind of drops in the bucket, so to speak. And they start to affect us less. And we start to live, I think, with a lot more gratitude overall um, in anything we do. Yeah, so much gratitude and feel more at a peaceful state, which is actually brings me to Heather's next question. Also, he is always, or, or no, she asks, is he always as peaceful as he is in his videos and lectures, or does he have days that he just feels in a funk? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm definitely human, so I definitely have days where I, I, I'm in a funk. But the thing is, and what I've started to um, recognize as, as I've continued to grow and live my life is that the funks, I guess, become less funky. You know, they're not as deep. They're, they're a lot simpler. They're a lot more of a surface reaction. So bad days when we're starting our practice might be devastating days where we feel like we just have to lay in bed all day and we, we absolutely despise ourselves. But as my practice evolved and as I've kind of learned to see the, the, the temporal nature of life and accept the good and the bad, the, the suffering and the grace, the bad days for me are kind of just days where I'm like, oh, I kind of feel weird today. You know, it's not really as deep of a thing. The cuts aren't anywhere near as deep. They're really, really just surface bad days. And I think that's because when you begin cultivating the eternal self, the soul, it starts to fill in any of those gaps where these regressive tendencies and these negative thoughts and emotions can just cut into the core of you. You fill those those gaps with the soul, with this empowering notion of the wholeness in which we are, again, which comes a lot of the time through meditation. So anything that affects you in a negative way is really only doing so on a small scale. That's the biggest thing I've noticed is that the negative days I have, the bad days are much, much smaller, uh, quote unquote, bad days than the ones I would have four or five years ago. Wow. So it's almost like you've made this transition from why is this happening to isn't that interesting? Like it sounds like you come from this witness state so that your relationship to whatever arises has changed yeah that's actually a great great way to see it it's kind of just you know you might i might wake up one day and go you know what kind of odd i feel a little sad right now you know it's just kind of a oh look at this so it, that's a great little way to explain it it's really just kind of you going hmm would you look at that it's not really oh my gosh i have to you know buy a pint of ice cream and just cry it's not that deep it's really just oh wow i, I kind of feel a little sad yeah, and, and observing it also reminds us how temporary it is, too. At least that's what I take from hearing that. That's amazing. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the most important part is when we do have those those bad days, those sad days, just kind of watching it, you know, watching, oh, okay, what about me is sad? What aspect of me is experiencing this sadness? How can I, you know, learn from that? It, it always gives you, the, the more you meditate, the deeper you get into awakening this true self, 
the better you get at working through these these bad days you know whereas before we just try to push it out of our mind and let it pass over watching whatever arises and letting it pass over i love it all right isabel mergelis asked when life gets extremely heavy and difficult how do you maintain positivity mindfulness and peace in the everyday while working through the struggles that just comes through seeing the temporal nature of reality that's really again what meditation teaches us is you know uh, that that famous quote this too shall pass and as cliche as it is it's very true and everything will pass there's nothing that will remain forever so even even the worst of the worst will continue to pass and that for me has always kind of brought optimism to my life um one thing that i recognize that really kind of caught like took my breath away um where i started to see my path is evolving is that uh, I was raised by my grandfather, pretty much. My father wasn't around very much. And so my grandfather is essentially my father. And he got pretty sick a few months ago, and we weren't sure if he was going to, to, to make it or not. He was in the hospital. Um, and they weren't sure. They were doing tests on him. And whereas years before, I might have been absolutely, you know, raging and upset and resistant and throwing things and crying, I was kind of sitting there thinking that if he was to leave, I was full of gratitude that I had the experience of a father at all through him. And that kind of, you know, really took me aback because I realized just how, you know, not only a few years ago I would have been so upset to it, but now it's more so seeing, you know, the silver lining of even something as, as, as big as death, especially in the West when it's such a taboo topic. And that's one of the things you start to cultivate is as you get into your practice, these hectic times, anything that can happen, no matter how bad, you always kind of start to subliminally find a silver lining within it that you can use to, to guide you through it in a sense. The same way uh, you know, a ship can be out in the middle of a storm and it can see a, a lighthouse off in the distance. Now it has no idea how far that light is, but it knows there's a light there. So it has that kind of glimmer of hope to guide it towards the shore. Wow, that shows true strength and Actually, I remember, I think it was last year, I was hanging out with you in Malibu and you were talking about like if something were to ever happen to your grandfather, that you would be okay, 100% okay. And that really got to me because I always thought if something happened to my dad or my mom, then I would just not, I don't know if I could survive the next day, but you did put, you put it into perspective. And I'm also so sorry to hear about your grandpa, by the way. Um, well, the good news is that he's, he's healthy now, so he's all good, right. <laughs> good, good. But like I said, it's just one of those things where even even if something might happen, you you find that silver lining. You know, you you start to instinctually see uh, the good instead of the the potential bads, and that's a complete flip of the mind compared to how most of us live out our lives. Wow, it's amazing that here comes one of the hardest things in life. You know, death is something that challenges all of us to our core, and you took it and kind of found this gratitude of it's a gift to have a human life at all and to experience this person, and that's so beautiful. So I really want to honor you for that. Thank you. And what, what I also would like to say to everybody is we have to understand, too, that the reason anything becomes, you know, one of the hardest things in life is only because we don't take the time to really meditate on it or to really think about it at all. You know, the, the biggest things are the things that we ignore. 
And then that comes with anything, sickness, death, poverty, famine. The things that we ignore are the things that always end up affecting us the worst because we don't want to give it any thought whatsoever. We'd rather ignore it or push it away. But it's important to really think about it, to sit with it, to, to, to meditate upon even things that we don't want to meditate upon so we can come to understand them um, from a neutral vantage as you know what they are beyond what we want or don't want them to be. And that ties into our next question, actually. Taylor Christine asked, how do you find an inner light and spread positivity while maintaining neutrality, our most balanced state? Namaste. Mm -hmm. Namaste. Well, we can be balanced, but we have to see that we are the inner light. You know, the Atman within is Brahman. That basically means that the soul within you, the, the conscious manifestation, your existence at all as a perceiver is happening because the pure nature of consciousness, which is the universe manifested into a subjective view of consciousness. So that for me is the light, is just knowing that the whole condensed into a singular aspect of its own self. It's detached into me and it allowed me to experience it. So it's very empowering knowing that you're all of reality that's somehow manifested in a way that allowed you to perceive life as if you weren't. It's, it's a really, really unique thing. And it's, again, something we haven't discovered so far anywhere else in the universe. And that to me is, you know, my inner light is just knowing that I'm the whole um, playing out the soul. <laughs> my inner light. Ooh, that actually is perfect for this very next question by Laura Deerdorf. Deerdorf, that's such a cool Harry Potter-like name. It is a I, Harry Potter name. <laughs> that's so cool. Anyways, um, and she asked, and by the way, you actually talked about this some in the very last episode, so it'd be nice to hear it reiterated. Um, what are some of his go-to affirmations or mantras? Oh, one of my main mantras is uh, it's all about just being. That's a big one for me. You know, it's all about just being, and that's that kind of neutral space that just – that being the witness it's all about just being um that's that's a really powerful one you know ramdas i also love ramdas's mantra uh that he's been using for decades and then just telling yourself you know i am loving awareness uh, i am loving awareness i am loving awareness i am loving awareness i am loving awareness just always 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 repeating that to yourself um but the thing with mantras is that it's not so much about what my mantra is. It's about whatever mantra you discover for yourself. The mantra is very unique to each of us. And that's why there are so many endless mantras. You can even create your own mantra. Um, I would recommend doing that, you know, is searching mantras, Googling them, reading books about mantras, discovering them through different teachers, because many teachers have many mantras, um, and seeing which ones resonate with you. That That's how you discover your mantra. You don't just... Um, see someone you, you might enjoy the teachings and go, yeah, that's my mantra. You know, it, it might not resonate. So I would just say, you know, do your research, look around, be open to these different mantras, these different chants, these different reiterations and see which ones kind of pull at your heartstrings. Yes. And you have a whole chapter on that. For me, mantras definitely resonate. It depends on the day. I have mantras where, that I recite daily in my mind in the morning, or I also might be going through a phase and I recite the same mantra to just feel more empowered and in that state. So that is so powerful. All right, yes. Hannah. 
Hannah Cuffon. I'm sorry if I pronounced your last name wrong, Hannah. But anyways, she writes, So I know Koi is in a beautiful relationship with his soulmate now, but I was wondering if he ever dated people that didn't share the same spiritual values and were on a different path and how he coped with that. Essentially, do you think a relationship is possible if your potential soulmate isn't on a spiritual journey? And if so, how can you grow in that relationship? Would love both of your input as well. Hmm. Well, um... I haven't really dated very much. I mean, I've gone on over the past couple of years, a decent amount of dates, you know, obviously you're looking, you're wanting to find somebody. You always, everybody wants a partner, I think at some point. It's it's great to share what you're doing with somebody else. And I, I, I was with somebody in the past for a few months who wasn't following the same sort of path I was at all. I wasn't really into spirituality. And it never really resonated with me. Now, many people can do it. I, I don't say you can't, but I do really think it's important to, if you can, seek out those who are following your path. It's the same way with the Sangha and Buddhism, the community, right? If you're practicing any spiritual practice, you're not, you know, if I'm trying to practice uh, Buddhism, I'm not going to go practice in a biker bar. It's going to make it really hard for me to practice. I'm going to go to a temple. I'm going to go to a space where I can actually integrate those thoughts with others who understand those thoughts. So it really helps us a lot more, um, in my humble opinion, if we find those who share similar goals with us, because then we can share similar interests, similar concepts, have similar philosophical discussions, and really just deepen our practice with another soul. Um, You can definitely have a relationship with somebody who is not spiritual whatsoever, but it, it depends on how deeply you want to go with your own spiritual practice. And I think at some point, the deeper you go, you're going to always reach an impasse if you're not in a union with somebody else who is on a similar path. Uh, I think that's kind of inevitable. Yeah, it's so important to be with somebody that is like-minded. However, I wonder if Hannah was wondering, because maybe she is interested or she's with somebody that isn't um, on a spiritual journey or has an interest in it. Maybe she's curious what she should do. Well, karma talks, and I, I agree with karma in this sense, karma talks very much about not trying to influence others that aren't wanting to be influenced. So... We aren't, with spiritual practice, we're not trying to go be street pre- preachers like we see in Abrahamic faiths, where we're just shouting through megaphones trying to convince people that our way is the right way. That's not how you awaken people. That's not the right thing. You're influencing, um, basically you're immersing yourself in others' lives without their permission, and that's just a kind of a regressive thing. It's very volatile to do, or to have that thought process as a way that you should integrate. What we do instead is we, we interact with those who want to be interacted with, and the spiritual path is the same. If I'm with somebody, if they're open to learning, open to spirituality, of course, I'm going to share with them. I'm going to dive into it as deeply as I can with them. But if they're not, I'm, I don't think it's right to try to convince them to pick up spirituality because we all evolve at our own rate. Um, and depending on our karma and our, our incarnation, that we're, um, incarnation that we're in right now, the life we're living now depends on whether or not we're going to have any draw to spiritual practice whatsoever. I mean, this is why you can see people that are, you know, even raised in spiritual families just absolutely distance themselves from it because their karma dictates, you know, their life, their actions, put them in a space where they either are receptive or are not receptive to it. So if if you're with somebody and they are just absolutely against it, I think that will create a major impasse going forward. But if they're open to it, then that's great because it leaves you in a space where you can actually, you know, start to work forward with them. All I can say is that if you are looking to be with somebody or if you are with somebody who has no interest in your life practice, your spiritual practice, 
all we can do is be empathetic with them, love them, serve them, continue our practice, and maybe one day our practice will rub off on them. But we can't go into it with any expectation of that happening. I think it's an interesting opportunity, actually, for growth if the other person is on a different path in the sense of it really tests where we're at spiritually to love someone unconditionally to their own path and their highest image rather than comparing them to our path and trying to love them to what we think their highest image is. So it's almost this interesting opportunity through that contrast. But I do agree that it does make it a lot easier if the person is aligned with your kind of lifestyle, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Yeah, and that, that's just how, you know, likes and um, opposites work in any aspect. Right? If you're with somebody who likes the same sports team as you, it's going to usually be a much more enjoyable experience than if you are with somebody who is rooting for your rival. You know, you can still do the same actions together and watch the games, but there's going to be a different emotional and mental state while those actions are occurring. Yeah, I think it's so it's so case by case. I mean, sometimes contrast is what creates an even more beautiful, powerful truth. And sometimes it just completely flows and is aligned. So Precisely. And it all comes down to our, our awareness of the situation and where we think it will go and what we think we should do uh, in those individual scenarios. Meditate and you will know. <laughs> we interrupt this episode to thank our sponsor and our new go-to magical liquid elixir for Sigmatic Tribe. Did you know that Buddhist monks drink the mushroom lion's mane to enhance their focus during meditation and improve memory? And there's a whole kingdom of mushrooms like reishi, also known as liquid yoga, as I like to call it, mm-hmm. that have been time tested and are scientifically proven to help alleviate stress and activate sleep cycles. It's almost like a safe tranquilizer for the brain. And it's no secret that Ali and I are unabashed coffee addicts. We're lovers, which I guess is a better term. We're coffee lovers, and we wonder why it's noon 45 and we just can't focus and we have these crazy jitters and stomach pains. And I even tried to switch to an organic decaf to avoid these issues, which only triggered worse symptoms. But now we're free from all those jitters, crashes, and stomach issues, so we had to share with you the healing powers of mushroom coffee by Four Sigmatic. We're drinking the healthiest and best of the best mushroom coffee that provides amazing health benefits for our body and mind. It is the drink for the soul. It is the drink for the soul. I love that Four Sigmatic combined a magical mix of the mushroom adaptogens with coffee. And oh, I also love their decaf too, because for me, it's not really the caffeine so much. Well, it is in the mornings, but... It's about the taste. So midday, I mix their decaf with cordyceps and lion's mane, which I also call Allie's hair, because you know. And I really do think it helps me focus on your own magic work during the day without the stomach pain. So I finally can just drink coffee pretty much all day. And for the matcha lovers out there, you must try their mushroom matcha mix. Such a delicious pre-yoga drink. It is soul good. Soul good. So we listed the benefits of each mushroom on our blog for you at yourownmagic.life. But Four Sigmatic is giving the Soul Tribe a 15% discount. Thank you so much. So just go click on the link in the show notes or go to foursigmatic.com forward slash soul tribe. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com forward slash soul tribe and enter the discount code soul tribe S-O-U-L-T-R-I-B-E 
one word, no spaces, Soul Tribe, for 15% off your magical coffee and mushroom elixir order. Soul good. Um, Morgan Blue Glass asked, how important is social media to Koi and does it ever affect his meditation and mindfulness? I feel like it's much more difficult to be as aware as we may aim for when it can be easy to be glued to our technology and apps. I feel like it's become an unconscious addiction and I don't see it as negative, but I do feel it takes away from my awareness of my surroundings and my ability to be present in the moment with only my thoughts. This is also part of me still becoming comfortable just being when I have nothing to do, which I know will take practice. Yeah, well, I've always been um, a, a major advocate of of social media simply because I think it is the most the most powerful tool mankind's ever had when it comes to spiritual progress and awakening the world. I think bar none, there is nothing like spirituality. We can connect the entire world um, in an instant. You know, we can have channels where a million people can see a video at the same time around the world um, on different spiritual topics. So I think I love the internet in that aspect. But in the same light, yes, it can be taxing on our spiritual practice if we're also allowing ourselves to fall into areas of the internet, gossip, you know, mindless news, corruption, uh, propaganda that pulls us down. And that's something that I always struggle with. You know, part of my path and part of the struggle that I, I embrace is that I have to deal with seeing all of that all the time um, and still staying on my path, regardless of all these bombarding, unnecessary things that I'm subjected to by being online, by creating content and by interacting with all these people. But that's just, you know, one, one of the sacrifices I'm okay with making. A lot of people aren't the same way, you know, some people are okay with teaching their practice um, in the middle of a rundown temple in India, whereas others need to be, you know, in a nice city in an air conditioned building to teach. It just comes down to, again, like a case by case basis. But for me, it all comes down to if I'm recognizing myself being pulled into a negative mind state by anything online, I'll do my best to uh, distance myself from it right away. So if I'm reading something, I start getting upset. I'll just, you know, stop and go, what am I, I don't have to read this, you know, turn my phone off and then you're good and you can return to the moment, um, return to the, the presence of, you know, actual reality outside the internet. Um, but it just comes down to, you know, how much you want to be online. You can really limit yourself to what you see if it's going to help your path, but it's just hard for a lot of us to do that. It's kind of like, you know, having a TV and wanting to just have it set up so there's only three channels. Most of us might only watch three channels, but we still kind of have this subconscious addiction of scrolling through all the other channels as we find those three channels. So that's how the internet works too. We might be online majority time trying to educate ourselves, but we might subconsciously still like to read about the gossip every once in a while. And that's just something we have to work through and learn to overcome in time. I agree. I think, and I love what you said about some people teach in a temple, some online, because truly it means that life is the sacred temple, no matter what that is. And that comes in many different forms. And I know personally, social media has been one of the most amazing, profound places to really share wisdom and receive wisdom and it's been such a catalyst for my own awakening that I think it's exactly what you're saying and just maintaining that level of awareness of how is this affecting me right now and if it's something we should spend more or less time on it's just all about that awareness yeah exactly 
And that's one thing, you know, especially with creating content on YouTube, I recognized early, early on. That's why I think so many content creators do have this kind of regressive addiction to the internet, kind of a la gambling in a sense, because you start to get obsessed with different aspects of where you're at. So I know, of course, you guys might know too, Instagram, YouTube, podcasts, we get obsessed with analytics, right? So we start attaching to how a podcast does, how many downloads there were, how many listens, how many comments were on my last video, what the like ratio was. And we have to learn to overcome this and just be okay with the message as it is. And this is something that I learned um, early on. You know, when I started posting videos in the beginning, I was really trying, and I still do, you know, with my whole heart. And I would get, you know, mean things, and I I get upset and angry and volatile. Oh, why are they? I'm trying so hard. I'm being so nice. Why are these people being mean? It's these attachments to wanting everything to be perfect, but it's never going to be perfect. So you have to just kind of learn to live through that and live again with this loving detachment and just knowing that if you're doing the best you can. That's all you can ever do and being completely content with that. I love that. And I think it's true. And obviously in social media and other platforms, numbers are important and other people's opinions are important in a sense, but then letting go of it afterwards and kind Mm -hmm. of coming back to that neutrality. Yes. Um, Molly Davies asked, what do you do or what to do when traveling on a spiritual journey and having a person that holds you back, especially when... This is a toxic person that you cannot realistically just cut out of your life like a family member or roommate. And what are some of the ways to still embrace this person with love but find your own space for growth? So I did a video a long time ago, maybe two years ago, about toxic relationships. And all we have to do is get out, get ourselves out of that victim mentality, right? So if I'm going into every day saying X, Y, or Z person in my life is toxic and therefore hurting me, I'm putting myself down because I'm allowing this person to be toxic. I'm allowing them to hold that negative connotation as to how they apply to my life. What we have to do, and this is really all we have to do, is instead of seeing them as a toxic person, see them as a progressive challenge to my path. So if if my father or mother is um, completely resistant to my spirituality and I think of them as toxic, it's going to be kind of a, 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 a an escape. We're going to want to get away from it or stay away from it or ignore it. But if I see these people as a challenge to how I can continue my path, it's going to make me want to embrace it and face it and kind of own up to what's in front of me instead of running away from it and trying to deflect it. And that's all you really have to do is change your identifier. Change it from a toxic person or a toxic school or a toxic job to a challenging person from my path or a challenging job for me to progress in my path or a challenging place to study in school while I progress in my path. Make them all into challenges. That way we can use them as kind of fuel uh, for the spiritual fire. Yes, I love that. And that helps people bring awareness to where they might need to grow in their life. And a lot of times if we find somebody toxic, it's really our own projections of something that we might not like about ourselves so that every single person that you quote unquote think is toxic really is just for you to find out where you need to grow deep down. And that's their challenge that they provide you. Exactly. And, and the big thing we can learn to do with, by doing that is not identifying with the, even the aspect of toxicity as a thing. It yeah. starts to disappear. Everything can become a challenge at that point that we want to kind of face. 
I love that. That's going to help so many people. Ooh, and I like this next question by Kara Galea, but I'm sorry. I cannot pronounce last names well. All right. Well, Kara, you have a brilliant question anyways, and it is, when we are amidst a tough journey such as accepting another's decision, how do we make peace with the confusion or need for answers? And in these situations, to what extent can we trust the intuitions of others, such as psychics, clairvoyants, tarot readers, and is there a danger to consulting these intuitives? Um, I'm not sure your viewers will agree with me, but I'm just personally, I've never really been a, a fan of psychics or intuits or, or healers whatsoever. Um, I really think all the answers that we need are either directly given to us um, in these ancient books or they are something we discover from within. I, I think if you're getting these kind of notions of, of broad, confusing, or open-ended advice concepts ideas from other people they're always going to be very fragile and very volatile and worst of all they can be very broad so we can misinterpret them so for me i really just take all of my wisdom and all of these teachings from these ancient empirical kind of spirit sciences in a sense or from my own internal knowing uh, if, if you still though it's again comes down to our individual path that's just my opinion if, if you get help from these people or want to um work with them or use them as kind of tools for your path by all means feel free to do so but i think i personally prefer ways of learning and ways of using these tools that come from a more uh, founded space i would agree with that i used to see a lot of different psychic healer reiki master type of people and i think it's because i hadn't learned how to listen to my own heart and really the universe is always communicating to us what we need to hear and Sometimes for people who may not feel called to meditate or slow down and hear these messages, it can come through other people or from observing nature or other modalities, but it really, I agree, the most powerful one is by looking inside of yourself, and yeah. that's when it's the purest form, too. comes from within, but they can just be messengers in some way, and if it doesn't resonate, if your intuition is like, nope, as you were talking about earlier then, you know, that's just not the message you needed to hear. Precisely, yeah, and that's just kind of how I've always, I've always kind of had that view, um, just when it comes to things such as psychics or, or intuits or healers or Reiki. For, for me, it's just been more so about the philosophies or what I use to kind of speak, that speak, I guess, the most clearly, clearly to my soul. But for like you said, for others, they might feel that these energy healing sessions, these interactions with a singular human uh, speak, deeper than than anything else does and that's what that's the beauty of human life is that our individual experience is always going to be different from the person next to us and there is no one path uh ramakrishna would often say that you know all all religions are just different paths to god everybody's just trying to return to the oneness even if they don't know it um that's what all religions talk about at their core beyond their dogmas beyond the politics beyond the culture it's all just one or two or three or four or five or 10 different modes of integrating with that oneness and returning. Yeah, different tethers to connecting to spirit. And sometimes we need space to be held by others. And sometimes we are remember that we're capable of holding our own space. And either way, as long as it leads you to that eternal love. Um, Callan Van Paris asked, are there any books, songs, pieces of art that aren't overtly spiritual, but have helped you on your path of growth? Hmm. Um, 
I guess it depends on what you consider overtly spiritual. Uh, I, I've never really been into um, poetry or any literature that wasn't spiritual or well, I really only read a lot of spiritual literature or I read a lot of science fiction, but that didn't really affect my path. Uh, for me, it's more so been um, music a lot of the time. A lot of music is what speaks to my soul. I listen to a lot of uh, very ambient music. I don't really listen to anything with words in it. I think words mess up music <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, they kind of forced you to apply a meaning to the sound, whereas if there is no voice, you get to apply your own meaning. So I've learned a lot from just listening to different instrumental music, different um, vocal-free music, and they really helped me a lot because you react and you feel differently every day listening to them than you would um, anything with words because, you know, with words, it's always going to have the emotion that applies to those lyrics connected, whereas um, a space and uh, sounds beyond vocals are, are much more open to interpretation. So I really like to listen to a lot of instrumental stuff when I, I don't know what's going on or I'm having a hard day. I just kind of sit with this this sound, these frequencies, and let them kind of resonate through me and let my kind of soul uh, speak through the music, in a sense, to my own mind. I love that, seeing how the sound feels in your body. That's beautiful. Um, this is my favorite question. Emily Miaschen asked, how do you know when you're on your path? Well, you're always on your path. That's the thing. <laughs> um, your life I is your that. path. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there's, no, there's not a life path and a spiritual path. They're synonymous. They're one. Your life is your spiritual path, whether or not you're aware of it right now. So you're on your path. The difference is when that path starts to clear out is when you're really starting to find your dharma or recognize what your dharma is. Uh, I, I held a workshop in Los Angeles last night, and I talked about this. You know, we can be on our path. And right now, if we're not sure what's going on, we could be, you say, walking down the path at night with a bunch of weeds in the road and rubble, and it can be hard to walk down our path. But once we start to figure out what works for us to understand where we're going, that path starts to clear, the light starts to rise um, from the sun, the path starts to clear out, it might turn from gravel to a paved road, and things become much easier to walk down. And that's really what the spiritual practice and progress is about, is recognizing how much less resistance there is in waking life compared to where you stand now, which is most likely a space of confusion and suffering, which are two of the biggest things that plague uh, most of mankind. So yeah, every day, everything we do is all part of our spiritual path. The spiritual practice, however, is just a way of us to kind of clean up this path and clear off this path so that everything um, takes a lot less effort and a lot less worry to to walk down. I love that. So pretty much to sum this entire entire conversation up take the path of least resistance (laughs) and that's when you recognize that you are following your clear path it just seems to be a common theme throughout our entire talk right now and i absolutely love that and will you say one more time if you're walking down a tumble of weeds and will you reiterate that because that was beautiful Yeah, so it's just kind of understanding that, again, your path is what you're always going to be walking down. The spiritual path and the life path are synonymous. But if our life path is currently hard, that means we're kind of walking down a path that might be dark, full of weeds, gravel everywhere, sticks and and bush, and it might be hard for us to walk through it. We might have to watch where we're walking and be really worried about every single step, which is how a lot of us live, worried about what the next day will hold. But 
the beauty of spiritual practice is that we start to clear out the road. We start to find the pavement. We start to see the weeds dissipate. The light starts to come up, and we don't have to look down anymore. We can kind of see far ahead that our path is clear all the way, and there's no worries for years, even decades. So that's kind of just what spiritual progression is, is just each day becoming a less resistant thing. There being less suffering, less attachment, and more bliss and um, peace, I guess you'd say. Yes, and that's when we know when we are just following that path and feeling more peaceful. I love that. And so this is actually a great wrap up for, for our entire episode. We need to ask you again, uh, how would you advise people to create their own magic? To create their own magic? I yes. would just say be open to interpretation um, from anything, really. Everything can be your teacher. I think the biggest fault we're going to have with spirituality is starting to cultivate a spiritual ego where we go, you know, oh, I'm too spiritual for that, or I already get that, I already understand that, I don't need to look at that anymore. We start to, you know, cultivate this kind of arrogant um, confidence that can really lead us into spiritual materialism or confusion. So the thing is to remain humble, but to remain curious and to continue cultivating knowledge. You know, you can be a master of your craft, but that means nothing if you think you're the only master or you think that no one can master it the way you have. If it becomes a competition, if your ego becomes involved, that can be destructive. So we create our own magic, I think, by allowing ourselves to really integrate deeply into our practice, but to do so with humility and humbleness above all. And you are definitely one of the greatest masters of your craft. So thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom, Koi. Will you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yes, if you guys would like to. Um, one, I, I actually teach now in Los Angeles at uh, Believe or Leave Meditation every Saturday night. Um, I started that this month. So if you ever want to come out to a class, uh, there's an app called BOL Meditation. If you're in Los Angeles, you can see my classes on there. Uh, if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, my handle is just Koi Fresco, K-O-I-F-R-E-S-C-O. And then I teach as well about four days a week on YouTube at youtube.com slash Koi's Corner, K-O-I-S-C-O-R-N-E-R. I would love to meet you. <laughs> we will definitely link below Koi's Corner because it is absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Koi. Thank you, Koi. And... Everyone, go check out his book. It is so amazing and simple and clear if you're looking to deepen your meditation practice or if you're new to it. Either way, this book is for you, which we'll link below as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. I had a beautiful time uh, chatting with you guys. Thank you so much, Koi. Thank you. We are so grateful you tuned into this podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and rate us on iTunes. Yes, and those of you who leave a rating and review, we want to share our gratitude by sending you a special gift. Just email info at yourownmagic.life and we will send you an exclusive meditation guided by the both of us. And make sure to say hi to us on Instagram. I'm at Ali Michelle L. Don't forget the random L at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Raquel mantra. Thank you and have a magical day.
Oh, oh, oh.